Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's show, what on earth is going on with the price of gas? Huge jumps, and our guest, Dan McTague, says, yeah, there's more on the way. Hockey Canada in tough. Board directors testifying in Ottawa once again today. And we'll talk about how demographics in our country have changed. As we were warned they would, we're getting older, and that's going to have some impacts. If you've been to the gas station in the last week or so, you've noticed that things changed pretty drastically. Um... And uh, trying to figure out why. Okay, we get the four and a half cents per liter of gas tax coming back on. Okay, fine. Uh, but gas prices went up a whole lot more than four and a half cents, more like 25, 30 cents in a lot of cases. So what's happening? We're going to bring in Dan McTague now, the president of Canadians for, for Affordable Energy, to give us a bit of a breakdown here. Hi, Dan. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Shane. It may be unaffordable energy these days. <laughs> no kidding, right? Okay, well, first of all, what happened? I mean, was it, was it just Alberta? It wasn't, right? Right across the country, prices really spiked. Yeah, especially Western Canada. Uh, you're influenced by the Chicago spot market for gasoline. There's been some refinery issues south of the border. BP Whitting plant, 400,000 barrel capacity. It's pretty pretty big. And another uh, plant, uh, BP Sonovas owned uh, in Toledo, Ohio, also affecting the U.S. Midwest, uh, simply uh, disintegrated. I mean, it blew up, and uh, there's no intention to get it back on up and running anytime soon. So that's left markets uh, scrambling. There's a bit of a shortage of crimp on supply, and, and the numbers are, are pretty simple to bear out. That Chicago spot market a month ago was about 250 a gallon. Now it's about uh, 330, 325, 330, 340 a gallon. I'm just looking at the numbers right now. Uh, it looks like it's up to about 342 uh, a gallon. What that really means, though, is that that 80 cent increase works out to about 35 cents a liter uh, for the price of gasoline. So apart from a weaker Canadian dollar, yep. apart from that four cent, uh, four and a half cent increase on the tax. Uh, you know, your uh, the market alone has uh, has uh, determined which way prices are going. And you know what, Shay? I'm looking this morning, both Calgary and Edmonton. I'm seeing dollar fifty six point nine, which is incredible when you think about it, because it's costing most gas stations about a dollar sixty two to a dollar sixty six to buy. Really, it. hey? So, yeah, they're selling below cost right now. Interesting. Okay, so the the math checks out. It's not a situation like we had earlier where we thought gas prices were maybe taking a little off the top. Um, so what's the expectation going forward? Is this long-term, short-term, up-down? What are you thinking? Yeah, well, gasoline aside, now we have the uh, oil market moving in a very different direction, decidedly. Um, OPEC is not fooling around anymore. They uh, they don't like uh, the U.S. using you know its reserves to... Uh, uh, as it were, try to uh, you know manipulate the market in their words. Uh, so they're willing to cut back oil to million to two million barrels uh, a day, and that yeah. result of that, uh, they're likely to lead to uh, well, it's pushed oil from seventy eight bucks a barrel WTI all the way up to where is it now? But eighty six, almost pushing eighty seven dollars a barrel. That's uh, a sign, Shay, that we're going to see much higher prices, not just for oil not just for gasoline, but most importantly for uh, for diesel and home heating fuel and things like that. Uh, it's going to be a very expensive winter. 
Okay, and I guess if there's any comfort in being in Alberta right now, like you say, we're looking at like a dollar sixty. Some places I'm, I'm hearing a dollar seventy six in Hinton this morning, but could always be worse. BC is paying. Uh, is it true it's the highest price ever in North America for a liter of gasoline? Yeah. So uh, I spoke to your sister station, CKW, uh, back last week and said, "Get ready for it." Once we broke over two thirty six point nine. Uh, that was a record I think had held since June the 11th, June 8th, June 11th, somewhere around there. They went to 241.9, so you definitely catapulted way beyond uh, the uh, the highest price ever paid. And uh, you know that has to do with the Pacific Northwest U.S. market, the West Coast. As long as the uh, as you have jurisdictions in Canada, the United States that make gasoline more difficult to produce, uh, less economically viable, you make basically boutique gasoline as they do in California. Uh, and to a lesser extent, British Columbia, with their uh, you know their emphasis on the clean fuel standard, what I call the second carbon tax. Well, you can expect to pay more for fuel. It's, it's just that simple. And of course, I I know it's music to the ears of some, but I you know as a Torontonian, I guess I sort of look back at this and say, why would your provincial government have spent so much time blocking a pipeline that could allow both more oil and more gasoline through the existing Trans Mountain pipeline to come to the rescue of uh, folks in Vancouver. Sure. At the end of the day, that was a political decision, and it's now coming to cost people. The very people who voted for this are now paying for it. Yeah, in a big, big way. Um, in terms of what you're expecting, how high do you think it could possibly go this winter, Dan? Well, for us here, I think uh, that hint in $1.76 is likely what you're going to see in Edmonton, Calgary, uh, very soon. Because if it's costing those gas stations $1.66 to buy their fuel, and they add a $0.09 cent yeah. or $0.08 cent retail margin with GST, yeah, it's, it's going to happen this week. I think $1.90 is likely where we could see prices wind up here in the province, especially if we don't have that formula uh, you know, where if it's below $90 a barrel, uh, you know, uh, then, you know, your tax comes off. I, I'm not exactly sure how that formula works into it, but uh, suffice it to say that uh, markets alone, I think, are going to push oil back to about $100 a barrel. When that happens, I think gasoline will be in for the ride. That means, uh, you know, buck eighty-five, maybe even the dollar ninety in some instances here yeah. as they head towards Christmas. Yeah, and Dan, with that tax, I mean, if it hits $90 a barrel, the tax comes off. That's $0.13 cents a litre. That's been off for a long, long time. And like I say, only $0.04 cents went back on, but the price of gas has shot up by 25, 30 cents. So, Yeah, there's two, there's really two or three markets there. The diesel market, the gasoline market, the oil market, and they don't often work in sync, although this time of year they normally do. But uh, considering the world is short of fuel, short of oil, and OPEC's prepared to uh, basically make it very clear to, uh, to uh, energy traders, particularly paper financial traders, those not physically involved, uh, that they, uh, there's something dysfunctional in the way in which they're ignoring fundamentals. I think OPEC's going to make a, a pretty strong case for uh, getting all of them to sort of focus, laser focus on fundamentals once again, as opposed to obsession with recession and everything else that they do. All right, so buckle up, I guess, is the message then, hey? Hang, hang tight, man, because I look at the <laughs> Chicago comprehensive market is already up five cents a liter. There's no way gas stations can keep selling for 156.9 when their wholesale price by Thursday or Friday will be $1.70. Okay, there you go. You've been warned. Dan, as always, great insight. Thanks so much. Good to be here, Shay. Thanks for having me. You bet. That's Dan McTagg, who is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. And uh, sorry, I know that's not the news any of us were looking for. So the story on the minds of many Canadians today, Hockey Canada, uh, the past chair of the board, Michael Brindamore, along with the interim chair, Andrea Skinner, appearing before the Canadian Heritage Standing Committee in Ottawa. I think this is the third time 
that uh, a hearing like this was being held in Ottawa to try and get to the bottom of how the organization has dealt with sexual assault claims uh, over the years. It, it all started, as we said, back in May when it came to light that they had settled uh, a lawsuit with a woman who alleged she was sexually assaulted by eight members of the 2018 junior men's hockey team during a June gala event in London that year. Um, from there, we went on to learn that they had used hockey membership fees to build up um, a fund that they would use to pay for uninsured liabilities, which include sexual abuse claims. And then yesterday we find out that there's not one fund like that, there's actually two. So this is the drip, drip, drip as more and more information comes out, like all confidence and transparency has been shattered. So the question is, going forward, do the calls to have the organization rebuilt need to be heard by the organization? So far they haven't. There's been one resignation, it's Michael Brindamore, who's testifying today. He left in August, he was done in November anyway. And the rest of the board is intact as it was, along with the people who run Hockey Canada. We're going to chat now with Dr. Laura Meisner, who's a director and professor at the School of Kinesiology and Faculty of Health Sciences in Western University, and uh, deals a lot with sports governance. Uh, Dr. Meisner, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Oh, I'm happy to be here. It's that governance piece that, that I want to talk to you about today. Um, do you think, uh, do you echo the sport minister, um, Justin Trudeau, Sheldon Kennedy, the long, long list of people who say, you know what, you got to start over. You got to tear this down and start over. We need, need a new um, form of governance around Hockey Canada. Right. I, I think the, the question is much bigger than just simply the, the governance and the leadership. It's it's about the culture of the sport itself, and that's been built up around the sport. It's a culture of, of silence, a culture of toxic masculinity, and, and governance alone isn't going to change that. But it has to start there. It has yeah. to start from that leadership stepping aside and saying, you know what, we're not in a position to make that change. And uh, right now, you know, it's very clear that these individuals don't see themselves as wanting to give up that, that power. Um, they think they can make the change from within, which is problematic in and of itself, given all the information that we have now. And I think that's only the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we're hearing. Um, and so there needs to be change and they need to be willing to step back. It doesn't mean that down the road, should those individuals end up being the right people to bring back into the organization, they couldn't be brought back in. But ultimately, at this point in time, they need to be stepping aside. A couple of things you talked about there. Do you really think there's more? I mean, this is the part that blows my mind. Like, obviously, Hockey Canada's strategy is to just try and uh, cross their fingers and hope nothing more comes to light, knowing there's more. We've seen it come out time and time again. You really think there's still more that we're going to learn? Oh, I, w- I would love to say to you that, that there's not, um, that we're not going to learn more than that we've sort of uncovered all of the demons uh, that are in the closet. But unfortunately, I don't think that that's the case. Um, the situation that we're hearing about, and, and you talked about the introduction, um, you know, that happened, that came out to light in May and happened many years ago. I don't think that's a nice, that's not an isolated incident. There isn't, there's sure. a reason that these accounts are set up. And so I think we're going to hear more of these accounts coming forward. You know, if we look back to the time when Sheldon Kennedy came forward and started talking about what was going on in hockey, and then we started to hear from others. We're seeing that happen in other sports like hockey. We heard some more about um, figure skating. We've heard about it. I mean, we could go gymnastics, on and on. Gymnastics, there's so a long list. Gymnastics, you know, it goes on. So, 
as soon as we start to hear these accounts, more people are likely to come forward and start to speak out. And when they do that, we start to uncover more and more things going on in these organizations. And so I think from that standpoint, that's part of the reason that the governance really needs to change. We need to be able to open the books and start to understand what was really going on, how things really are happening, if we expect to ever make change in that system. Um, But with those willing to just stay there in the position, hold that stance of governance, we're never going to see real change in the culture of the sport. And that's what ultimately needs to happen. And when you talk about that culture, the the confidence and the transparency in this leadership group, we we have to believe that we um, are all on board here. And like I say, I've been involved with minor hockey and I know all the work that's done at the grassroots level with the little kids and the coaches and everything involved. And then you've got this complete and utter disconnect with what seems to be happening with the national body that oversees the sport. That disconnect, that lack of confidence and parents rightfully being very upset with some of their registration fees going to pay for this. You can't replace it with the same people that are there. No, no. I mean, that's the big thing is the confidence in the sport that is so ingrained in our Canadian culture. And so, you know, while we think about the the grassroots programs that we have in our communities that are wonderful programs, a lot of the funds that that are collected through those programs are supporting Hockey Canada and the initiatives that they've they've been undertaking. And so we need to see that change. If we're going to see that confidence being built back up from this wonderful sport at the community level, but unfortunately, unless there's really strong change, major change in leadership, and a change in what that leadership looks like. I mean, that's part of the problem is we're trying to change uh, a rampant culture of toxic masculinity. Um, Really, and unless we see that change at the top level, and Minister St. John talked about it yesterday in that call for action, in the call for leadership change, we need different types of individuals leading this organization. We cannot perpetuate the same individuals trying to make change from within. It is not going to change the culture of the sport, and we're just going to totally lose confidence in what is supposed to be the wonderful part of this sport. A lot of people on the text line, and I agree with them, what about the people involved? I mean, I understand when you have a settlement, sometimes the the criminal liability is included in that, and it's no longer possible, but do we need to hold some of the perpetrators to account here? I mean, would that help? I mean, I think that's a starting point. It's a really difficult piece because, yes, the perpetrators need to be held to account, but at the same time, we need to understand a bit more about that culture piece because part of the reason we have these perpetrators in this system is because the system and the culture itself allows, enables, and supports them to perpetrate these acts. So we have to be careful about entirely blaming an individual. While that's important, Mm -hmm. it is about a bigger piece that has been enabled that and suggesting that that kind of behavior is acceptable, that it's okay to initiate individuals, that it's okay to support, you know, your teammates for, for these kinds of sexual and violent acts as a way to be part of the culture and not that gets silenced by coaches and administrators and all of those in governance because that becomes an accepted part of the culture and also an expected part of that culture. So we want to be very careful about blaming individual perpetrators because they are also part of a broader toxic culture that they then are buying into, having to become part of to be accepted in that culture. And so, you know, I really caution against that individual blaming and we need to look more broadly at how do we change that system to create a better, supportive, welcoming, safe place where people want to be in that sport. Now, 
Doctor, I, um, I, I'm not disagreeing with a word that you're saying. I'm wondering what what needs to be done to change that because I know um, uh, as a coach for many, many years um, and as a parent and as a player and all these, I, I've like if you go back to when I was playing, there wasn't a word mentioned about any of this stuff. Now, mm-hmm. um, there is a ton of work. There is a ton of yeah. training. There's a ton of instruction. There's a ton of awareness around all of these issues that you're talking about. Is it not having the desired effect? Well, I think the unfortunate thing is it's it's not it's not really having the the ultimate desired effect that we want because what what's actually happened is we've seen some change in the culture, but then a lot of the these acts become behind closed doors um, on a culture within a team where we don't talk about it. It becomes very silent because they know it's wrong, but it becomes so ingrained in that culture of the sport that, you know, with all of this awareness piece, with all the training that we all go through as coaches, as athletes, um, as officials, um, you know, we, we risk also silencing those acts even more because we know they're wrong. Instead of finding a place that's safe for those to speak out. So that's the bigger issue is that there are those who need to be empowered and ready to speak out to say that this is not acceptable because what we've seen throughout the years as we've become more aware of this is that really those who do speak out are ostracized from the sport and they don't become really fully ingrained in what it's about because they've called out their teammates, they've called out their coaches, they've called out the organization. And so we still tend to blame the victim instead of really blaming a system that is problematic. And so we've we've started down the path to do better, yep. but we have a long way to go to change that culture. Clearly. Can this be a turning point? Can this, what's going on with Hockey Canada right now, um, just sort of be the line in the sand where Canadians say, you know what, for the good of our game, this can't yeah. continue, we need, we need to redo this in a better way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I really, to be fair, I really hope so. Um, We know with, you know, international sport governing bodies, some of the major changes that have come about have become pressure from not the inside, but those from outside. So when we get pressure from sponsors, so where the money is, pressure from government saying this is no longer acceptable, that's when we see major shifts. My biggest concern about this is that we will see um, a change in governance, but not a real change in culture because that culture shift takes time it's not going to happen overnight we're not going to see it happen in the next couple of years and canadians need to be ready and willing to see their sport really get broken down the things that they have loved about their sport get broken down in order for us to be able to build it back up in a way that is safe and welcoming for all athletes to be involved and that's going to take a lot of time dr meisner great insight thank you so much for joining us today i really appreciate it Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's Dr. Laura Meisner, Director and Professor in the School of Kinesiology in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Western University. Think about it for a minute, and you know you've heard this for a long, long time. Our population's getting older. It's going to be this kind of a pressure on the healthcare system and on, you know, old age pensions, all of it. We've been told for a long time that baby boomers are dominating and getting older and older and older and we need to prepare for it. But after all that time of talking about our aging population, it appears that maybe we've arrived at that point where we've been warned about for so long. And um, our next guest says all those warnings and predictions are no longer on the way. They are here and they're going to keep coming for a while and it's really going to have an impact on the way governments 
handle things because uh, they're going to have to. So to chat about that with us, we have Jack Mintz joining us. Jack is the President's Fellow of the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Jack, thanks for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Oh, quite happy to do it. Thanks. So we've talked about these aging populations for quite some time now, and, and now we're starting to see it, right? It makes sense. Well, it's arrived, and in fact, you can see it from the data. Um, I went through the United Nations population uh, uh, predict, um, uh, forecasts uh, for the world, <laughs> not just for Canada. Okay. Uh, and uh, when you look at it, uh, the high-income countries are already going through a rapid pace of aging uh, between 2020 and 2035, just to give you a, num- a couple of numbers. Uh, in 2020, about... Uh, the, the number of people who are over uh, 65 years of age um, were about 25% of the number of, of working age people, which is 15 to 64 years of age. That number is in just 15 years, uh, going to 2035, is rising to 40%. Wow. Uh, you know, that's a huge increase. And, uh, and that's because we are aging very quickly. And when I looked at Statistics Canada's numbers uh, for 2022, it's very interesting that the uh, number of people who have retired each month has been over 200,000 uh, just for uh, 20 so far in 2022. And, uh, you know, that, that can add up to, uh, you know, almost uh, two and a half million people this, this year who are going to be retiring from the workforce. So, uh, you know, if we're, we're going to be in a period of constant labor shortages, I wouldn't call it necessarily labor shortages. Uh, yeah. Wages will go up, uh, but uh, certainly with tighter labor markets and uh, we've seen, and this is true not just for us, it's true for uh, all the high-income countries uh, as well as many middle-income countries uh, such as China and Brazil. And, okay, so when you break it down, what you've got, when you've got all this retiring population, basically what you have, I mean, just in cold, hard facts, you're, you're talking about dependents, and then you're talking about the workforce, and we are creating more dependents and uh, fewer members of the workforce, right? That's the imbalance that's being created. Uh, yes, that's right. In fact, the only part of the world where the age dependency ratio, which is usually measured by both young and old as a share of the working population, uh, that it's going to fall is the very least developed countries of the world. Okay. Uh, and uh, these are the poorest ones, you know, you know, that you typically find in, you know, such as in Africa and in uh, and in uh, some Middle East and and Asian countries, and and they will be having. You know, they will be bringing more labor to the international market, but of course it's not going to be as much skilled labor as you would find uh, in the high-income countries where it's, where it's going to be dropping quite uh, precipitously. Is this sort of a reversal in what we've seen for, you know, well, we're talking about baby boomers, so you go back to the end of the war and we've steadily, slowly but surely increased the workforce. We've had more women in the workforce, we've had more, you know, baby boomers, obviously, entering the workforce. So we've been building a workforce and now suddenly it's starting to go the other way. Exactly. And in fact, uh, there was another factor besides uh, women joining the workforce and the baby boomers going through the system. And that is uh, because of increased trade, uh, we've had some very large countries like China 
that opened up to the rest of the world, bringing their whole labor supply to the rest of the world. Yeah. And and so that's uh, you know that's you know that's that's not going to happen anymore. And so uh, as I mentioned, there's only least developed countries that are going to be able to provide new labor supply. Uh, basically, most of, uh, but even even that is going to be swamped by the uh, aging that's going to be uh, going on in the rest of the world. And uh, and in fact, when you actually look at the total world, uh, the whole world is aging, not as rapidly as the high income countries, but the, but it is aging. So what does that mean for the people who will be developing public policy for the next, you know, couple of decades here as this transition happens? I mean, that's going to be a massive factor on all kinds. I mean, healthcare and old age, all of these things are going to be changing drastically. Well, there's, you know, there's several things to it. Uh, number one is uh, some people, uh, you know, may decide to work longer because they're healthier, uh, especially in the high-income countries. On the other hand, you know, we have a lot of public policies that are based on people retiring at 65 years yeah. of age. And in fact, it takes away uh, the incentive to work work longer. And in fact, it has many economic studies have shown that the retirement age is, is heavily influenced by our pension policies and, and things like that. So I think governments are going to have to rethink some of that. Uh, we were starting to do that in Canada with the Harper government um, changing the age of eligibility for old age security and the guaranteed income supplement from 65 to 67, uh, but that was reduced by uh, by the the Liberal government uh, in uh, 2015, which I think was a huge mistake. Uh, because if anything, we should be going the other way uh, in terms of uh, you know encouraging people to work longer. Yeah, and other countries are right. Oh, yes, they are. In fact, many countries uh, have been doing. In fact, quite interestingly, Netherlands, for example. Uh, automatically index uh, the age of eligibility to uh, the expected life of people, and so they automatic it automatically goes up uh, if uh, expected life increases. And so, uh, in fact, many countries have been moving to 67. Even some have gone even longer, such as Japan. Um, so we are, you know, uh, that's one one set of policies. The other thing is that you know we can encourage uh, more uh, people to work in the workforce rather than stay at home. Uh, be and that's going to be uh, that's going to require rethinking some of our welfare policies, where we do give quite large amounts of money if uh, if they don't if people don't work in in some cases and uh, and we also have very high marginal tax rates on those people that do come into the workforce because they lose their income tested benefits and so that that is also another policy set of policies that we're going to have to think about uh, in terms of encouraging more participation in the workforce. Right. Yeah. I mean, so on that side of the equation and put up some barriers to retirement, if you will. What about making uh, some kind of effort to get more people into the workforce? Is there a way to do that? I guess immigration and, and increased productivity would be the only levers they can pull, right? Well, immigration is certainly a uh, help, and Canada's had good immigration policy, but uh, I think we should expect that international markets, for, especially for skilled labor, are going to get a lot tighter now over the next 15 years because every country is going through aging. It's not just Canada. And it means that everyone's going to be looking for skilled labor. And also, uh, with rising wages in many countries, uh, there'll be less incentive for people to move because they'd rather stay at home. They're used to a certain culture. They have their family around. They're not just going to automatically uh, move unless, you know, there's some things going really wrong, like a like a war, <laughs> which, yeah. which sometimes leads people to move and, and you know, become refugees. Uh, and and uh, and so I don't think we should completely rely on immigration as uh, as a way of dealing with it. Instead, I think the real solution is to 
encourage capital investment because the good thing about uh, the you know the tighter labor markets is that wages will go up. Uh, that's what every economic model uh, suggests, and uh, that's actually not a bad thing. And uh, companies can afford higher wages if they become more productive or have more success with their productivity. And I think that's really important. But brace for change, right? Uh, I mean, when the demographic changes this dramatically, it's going to have an impact on, on all of us, whether working or retiring. That's right. And I think we've our agenda is changing, and I think we have to get back to really thinking about encouraging innovation. And, and we have to remember that a lot of the things that we're going to be doing over the next decade uh, are going to hurt productivity, you know, such as um, you know, cutting back trade because we're worried about uh, you know securing our domestic supply. Uh, we're going to be undertaking the energy transition that actually is going to be reducing productivity, not increasing it, because we're basically getting people to put you know carbon into the ground or or doing some other things in order to deal with climate change issues, but that's not going to be something that's going to grow GDP. That's going to be a cost that we're going to have to bear. Yeah, exactly. I go the other way. Uh, Jack, uh, great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks. That's Jack Mintz, who is President's Fellow of the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. And I think the interesting point is here, I mean, I don't know uh, what it's like for you, but, uh, you know, I've been in the workforce since, uh, let's call it, I don't know, 1990, okay? So 30 years, roughly. And uh, it's changed already, I think. There's a lot more people working longer, right? And some of it a necessity, some because they want to. Um, I think that arbitrary age of 65 that we set you know, many, 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 many years ago is certainly up for evaluation. And it is in a lot of other countries. And as Jack said, we did push it to 67 in this country. I think Japan has actually pushed it out to 70. Um, And it's just a simple factor of we're living longer and staying healthier longer into our old age than we used to be. So, uh, you know, having an added incentive to stay in the workforce a little bit longer, if you're able to, Makes good sense, right? And then the other side of the equation that Jack was talking about, as he said, right, what are you going to do to try and get more people into the workforce? How do you do that? Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.